I know it's been a long time since I preached. I know that because I need glasses <laughs> to read because I had cataract surgery last year. So I know it's been a while. So my glasses will be gone on and off, and I'll probably do this with my glasses. Don't let it distract you. Right, Barb? No problem. It's just a fidget. We're in a series on David. We're in the third week of our series. Uh, Jason, two weeks ago, talked about how David was an outsider. He was the eighth son of Jesse. And when Samuel came to anoint the new king and he said, go to Jesse and see his sons, Jesse presented seven sons, didn't even bother with David. Didn't even bother. That's how embarrassed Jesse was about his boy David. And David is the one that God chose, saying God looks at the heart. And he saw a heart in David that he could turn into a king. And so uh, Jason reminded us that David was an outsider. And then last week, uh, Jeremy talked about David and Goliath and about the great victory that David had over Goliath. And what Jeremy emphasized was that David relied totally on the Lord for that victory. He didn't uh, use weapons. Um, He simply said that he is going to go forward and the Lord will provide the victory. So he trusted fully in God, which was a proof of what Samuel had said, that God looks at the heart. This, This man trusted God fully. So I'm going to pick up the story, and I'm going to be a little ambitious, and we're going to try to cover three chapters, 18, 19, 20. And we're going to pick up the story right after David defeats Goliath. What happens is Saul says to David, I want you to join my household. David doesn't even get to go home after this victory with Goliath. He comes straight into the household of Saul. And there we read that David meets Saul's son, Jonathan. And the Bible says that Jonathan and David were one in spirit right away. In fact, what Jonathan does is he takes off his robe, he takes off his tunic, he takes his belt and his sword and his bow, and he lays them all at David's feet. And it's symbolic. What he's saying is, David, before you, I'm not a prince. I'm taking off my robe and my tunic. Before you, I'm not a warrior. And Jonathan had a lot of victories in war on his own. And he laid them before David. And he said, before you, David, it's just you and me. We're equals. We're friends. And that's all we hear about Jonathan right at the beginning of the story, is that he and David just bind together right away. So David now lives in Saul's household. And what Saul does right away is he gives David a high rank in the army. And those of you who know um, the way the army works, you earn your way up. Well, David comes from the field as a shepherd. He beats Goliath, and boom, he's got a high rank in the army. I'm not sure how that went over with the rest of the guys. But here he is having a high rank in the army, and he gets success after success after success. In fact, he gets so much success that people start a chant. And the chant goes like this. Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul doesn't like that. In fact, what the Bible says is that And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. Saul, however, has a role for David in his palace. He says to David, I need you to soothe me by playing your harp and your lyre. So David is playing his lyre one day, and it says that an evil spirit came over Saul, and he threw his javelin at, or his spear at David, and David eluded him twice. 
I would think that's a good reason to leave the household. But he didn't have to make that decision because Saul put him in charge of a thousand soldiers and sent him away. So essentially he said, I don't want you here anymore. Go, here's your troop of a thousand. By the way, you're on your own out there. Good luck. And he's kind of hoping that David's going to die in battle. But what happens? The Lord gives victory to David time after time after time. And he's successful once again. So Saul has to come up with a new plan. He's got a daughter named Merib. And he decides he's going to give Merib to David as his wife. It just seems weird, doesn't it? You're jealous of David. You don't like him. You throw spears at him. Let's make him a son-in-law. Don't you anybody say, I can relate to that. Don't you dare. So what's the plan? What's the plan here? Well, there's a really strange verse in here that doesn't make any sense without any context. But here's what it says. Here is my older daughter, Merib. I will give her to you in marriage. Only serve me bravely and fight the battles of the Lord. Now, that's really high ground there. You know what, David? I want you close because I want you to fight for the battles of the Lord. That's what I want you to do for me. High calling. High calling. And then he says this. For Saul said to himself, I will not raise a hand against him. Let the Philistines do that. So it's kind of weird. What's, what does the Philistines getting after David have to do with him marrying the daughter? They go, what's the relationship there? It doesn't make any sense, right? And anyway, David it says to Saul, I don't, I, I don't want to be your son-in-law. I'm, I'm not, I don't have a right to be your son-in-law. I'm just a lowly boy. So, no, I don't want Merib, your daughter. And Merib got given to someone else. Problem solved. Except for Saul had a second daughter named Michael. And Michael fell in love with David, and it seems as if the feelings were mutual. So Saul said, hey, opportunity number two. Okay. So they like each other. Okay, David, I will give Michael to you as your wife. Here's all you got to do. Kill a hundred Philistines, and we're good. Well, David goes out and kills not 100 Philistines, but 200 Philistines. So now we get what that quote was about earlier. His plan all along was, I'm going to put a plan in place where the only way David can have my daughter in marriage is if he goes out and basically gets himself killed. He's going to go against 100 Philistines. Well, David is successful once again. So now Saul's got a son-in-law in the family that he doesn't like. Yeah. So Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David. Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. That's not a household you want to be in, hey? Father-in-law is your enemy the rest of your days. So this is David's situation. He's in the family now and Saul is out to kill him. Now, the next thing that happens is, well, it's just blatant. Till now, Saul's been a little covert. You know, David, I'm going to give you a thousand troops, go out there and good luck, and he succeeds. Go kill a hundred Philistines, hopefully you die. He doesn't. Now he's just outright. It says in the next verse that Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. Let's just make it public knowledge. 
hey, the entire household, guess what? Let's just kill David. Let's just kill him. It's like, really? This is Everybody knows this now in the household? This is the job. Kill David. So Jonathan, he goes out and he tells David, David, uh, we got a problem. I want you to go hide, but I'm going to talk to Dad, and I'm going to try to talk him down. So Jonathan goes to, to Saul, and he says, look, why do you want to kill David? Like, he's done nothing but good for you. Like, you, you can't do him in. And Saul, he says this. He says, as surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Problem solved. Jonathan came to the rescue. He will not be killed. Welcome back, son-in-law. You can live here again in peace. Then war breaks out. David is successful once again. And Saul once again needs soothing. So he brings David in. He says, David, will you play your, my, your heart for me? And so David does so. And then Saul gets a little choked. Now this is an interesting relationship he has with David. Because David is the one that's the source of his jealousy and his rage. But David is also the one that soothes him with the harp and the lyre. So he brings David in to soothe him, and then he gets reminded how jealous and mad he is, and then he's got to bring David in to soothe him, and then he, like, it's just this terrible circle. David can't win. So David or Saul chucks a spear again at David, and he's thinking, I think the truce is over. I think Saul has changed his mind. Yep, he did. So, here's what happens next. David says, um, I'm pretty sure that your dad wants to kill me, he says to his wife, Michael. He says, I think I got to go. I think I better leave. So, Michael says, I think you're right. So, what Saul does is he sends people to Michael's house and they stay outside the house and he, Saul instructs them, stay there all night and in the morning I want you to kill David. And so what Michael does is she puts an idol in David's bed, puts some goat hair on the pillow, and then lets David out through a window. And David escapes. And in the morning, Saul finds out that his daughter has been complicit in David's escape. Saul said to Michael, why did you deceive me like this and send my enemy away so that he escaped? Saul's making no bones about it now. He used to be a son-in-law, now he's an enemy. We're against him. David has to run away. He has to leave the household. He has to leave his wife. And he goes to Samuel. I, could, I honestly would have loved to have heard that conversation. Samuel, I was a happy shepherd boy in the field. You came along and asked my father if he could see his sons. He showed him all the sons except for me. I was still happy in the field. What do you do? You bring me in. Say, there's got to be one more. You bring me in and you anoint me. And what's my life been like since then? The king of Israel, who has all the resources of the kingdom, an army at his command, wants to kill me. Thank you so much. So he runs back to Samuel, the person who anointed him in the first place. Saul finds out that David is hanging around Samuel, and he sends a group of people to go kill David, because now he knows where he is. These people show up and the Spirit of the Lord comes upon them and they begin prophesying and they don't kill David. Saul's like, come on guys, do the job, sends another group of people. They go see Samuel and David. They get filled with the Spirit. They begin prophesying and they also don't kill David. Third group gets sent. Same thing happens. They get filled with the Spirit and they don't kill David. 
Saul says, you got to do something. If you want to do something, you got to do it yourself. So he goes and shows up. And sure enough, the Spirit of God comes on Saul himself, and he also gets filled with the Spirit, and he doesn't kill David. You'd think Saul would have got the message at this point. Because the message that God was giving him, Saul, this isn't about David. You're not fighting David. You're fighting me. And when you come against me, God says, you're not going to win. You can send as many people as you want after David. You're not going to be successful. You're not. And you think Saul would get the message. Well, he kind of got the message because David didn't die. But David went to Jonathan and he said, Jonathan, look, I think it's over. I think I just got to go. Right? And so um, they devise a plan. Jonathan says, you know what? You... Jonathan is stubborn in a really good way. He's stubborn in a good way. Jonathan says, never. You are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything, great or small, without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It is not so. But David took an oath and said, Your father knows very well that I have fond, I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. What Jonathan is saying is, look, you're in no harm because whatever dad does, he tells me first and I'll let you know. And David is saying, look, the game's changed. Saul's not going to talk to you anymore. Because he knows that you and I are friends. He's going to go past you. And my life is in danger. Right? So they come up with a plan. Here's the plan. There's a, a celebration going on. And David is supposed to be there. So David says to Jonathan, look, if he says he misses me, means he still loves me, still wants me in his household. But if he gets angry, he probably wants to kill me. So day one of the feast, David doesn't show up. Nobody says anything. Day two, David doesn't show up. Saul says to Jonathan, hey, where's David? He hasn't been around. Where is he? And Jonathan says, oh, he had a matter to tend to with his family. He's in Bethlehem. Saul gets upset. Saul gets really upset. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan. He said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. In other words, it's not my fault you're such a problem. It's your mom's fault that you're such a problem. You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Now we're getting down to motivation. Saul realizes he knows. If David lives, my kingdom's gone. And Jonathan, how come you don't care? How come you don't care that your kingdom is going to be gone? Your chance at the throne is going to be gone if David lives. How come you're not on my side? Let's move him out. And Jonathan, he said, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And at this point, Saul hurls a spear at Jonathan to try to kill him, but he evades it. And Jonathan, from that point, knows it's over. The time of David in Saul's household is over. They, they have a signal that indicates that it's not safe for David to come back, but they have this 
happens at the end of their time together. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to town. There you go. 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20. Summarized for you. Reader's Digest version. Now, here's what happens when you preach at this church. Sheila wants a sermon title. Like Thursday. Inspiration doesn't hit me until Saturday or Sunday usually. So, there's my sermon title. Dave, Wingman, Red Baron. What's it got to do with what we just talked about? So I'm going to try to make a tie-in. So, the Red Baron... Red Baron was a German fighting ace that shot down 80 Allied planes. Don't worry, it'll connect in a sec. 80 Allied planes. He was famous for his red plane. He painted it a bright red. I mean, you could see the guy miles away. I mean, that shows he's, he's not afraid, right? I mean, he puts himself out there basically as a target. And he was famous also for flying a tri-wing plane. Three wings. And his tactic was to come from above. So he would fly above the Allied troops, and he would bomb down, and he would shoot them, and then he'd go back up. That was the Red Baron. When you're flying in formation, there's a squadron leader who's at the front, and to his right and just behind him is his wingman. And the job of the wingman is to watch out for any enemies that want to shoot down the squadron leader. That's his job. Watch out for watch out for the Red Baron. That's your job. Okay? Protect this guy. That's his job, be a wingman. And we have now in the vernacular, people use that term wingman. In fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, it says where one man helps another man achieve his goal. That's a wingman. You're going to watch out for him. You got his back. Okay? So in this story, we've got Saul as the Red Baron. Sometimes he likes David, sometimes he's like, he comes in, he bombs down, I'm going to kill him. No, I'm okay. I'm, no, I'm going to kill him. No, I'm not. No, I'm going to kill him. Right? Goes up and down all the time. David never knows when this attack is going to come. So David, or Saul, is David's red baron. But he's also got a wingman. He's got Jonathan. Jonathan's going to have his back. He's going to watch for him. He's going to make sure he knows if there's any harm going to come to him. He's going to make sure he's safe. And Jonathan keeps that up throughout his entire life. He's got David's back. He's his wingman. Okay. Get the application. Is that good? Did that tie? Good. So here's a question. Are you more like a Saul? Or are you more like a David? Or are you more like a Jonathan? And any of us at any given time could be any of those three. Here's Saul's problem. The reason that Saul got rejected as king was that the first thing he did is he was told there would be victory in the battle, but he had to wait for Samuel to offer sacrifices. He got tired of waiting, and so he offered the sacrifices himself. And I read one commentator that said, as far as a military perspective, that's a great idea. If, if the key to victory is the sacrifices, then offer the sacrifices, right? I mean, that's the key to victory. Do it. Do whatever it takes to win. But God told Saul, you got to wait. And he didn't wait. And Samuel says, you know what? 
God isn't interested in your sacrifice as much as your obedience, right? And then the second time he made a mistake was when God gave him a victory over a city and he said, kill all the livestock. And Saul, he kept the livestock alive. Now, Saul said it's because they were for sacrifice. I doubt it. I really do. I doubt it. But it's Saul. Saul's like, oh, no, no. No, no. I did, uh, the reason I didn't kill him is for a higher purpose, for sacrifices. In reality, probably it was just all the people saying, we're going to kill all the livestock? Why would we do that? The people are gone. The livestock are here. Let's take them. That's probably what happened. But Saul makes it seem all lofty. Oh, no, no, it's for sacrifices. And this is where we get this famous line that Samuel says to Saul, to obey is better than sacrifice. Just so I'm clear, God told you to do something so to honor him, you disobeyed him to give him sacrifices that would honor him. That's, that's your plan? That's your plan, Saul? No, no, to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul uses people in his household. He uses his daughters to try to get at David. He uses his son, Jonathan. Jonathan, we got to kill him. This is what Saul does. Saul has a plan about how God can bless him. Right? And he's going to manipulate things to make it work out. I'm like that sometimes. Hey, God, I'll do this. But you know what? I'd really like that. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. Problem with bargaining with God, whenever you're in a bargaining relationship, you've got to have something the other person needs, and they've got to have something that you need. Problem with God is he doesn't need anything. So anytime you bargain with God, you're at the wrong end. God just wants you to obey. So sometimes I'm like Saul. I'll say, God, I'll do this for you, but I, you know, you could do this for me. You know? So sometimes we're like Saul. Maybe there's something in your life where you're like, I'm bargaining with God. I told God I'll do this, and, and he could do this for me, but the reality is, you know what, I just need to obey. And then there's David. Then there's David. David has this anointing. He's, he's going to be the king of Israel one day. But the king of Israel is trying to kill him. That's his circumstance. So what I want you to know is that your circumstances don't determine your anointing. They don't determine your call. They don't determine your mission. God might have given you something to do, and you're like, man, everything is piling up against me. Everything. I have met so many people, and, I, and Barb can attest to this, we've met so many people in the last year who, like, they just, they have this passion. God wants them to do something. They have a call on their life. They have an anointing on their life, and everything's not working. Everything. I have good friends that say, the reason for that is God wants to make it impossible before he comes through. God wants to make it impossible before he comes through because if it's impossible, the only way it's going to work is if God does it. Because we'll try to manipulate circumstances. We'll be a little bit like Saul. You know, try to make it work. And God's like, you know what? I'm just going to make it so that it just seems like it can't work and then I'm going to come through. So some of you might be in a position where you're like, you know what? God's given you a passion to do something, an anointing to do something, a calling to do something. And you're like, but nothing is working. Nothing. I want you to know your circumstances don't determine your call or your anointing or your mission. Okay? Now, here's where the next one comes in. That's why we need a Jonathan. I've got Jonathans in my, my life. They're sitting around here. This morning I had Doug talk to me. I had Rocky talk to me. I had Diane talk to me. I had Jonathans come talk to me this morning to encourage me, which I so appreciate. I have Jonathans who come into my life, and they say, you have an anointing. You have a calling. And, and I'm going to stick with you. And I have your back. 
So maybe today you need to be a Jonathan for somebody. You need to say, you know what, I know that things aren't working right now, but I still believe you got a calling, you got an anointing, and it's going to happen for you. And I am going to stick with you until you get there. Right? So some of us need to be a Jonathan, and some of us need a Jonathan. No, no, no. All of us need a Jonathan. All of us need a Jonathan. We all need someone to come alongside and say, you know what, your anointing and your calling is sure. The circumstances don't determine that. God determines that. 